Part One, Chapter Eighteen of the Daisy Chain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Daisy Chain by Charlotte Mary Young. Part One, Chapter Eighteen. Saw ye never in the meadows where your little feet did pass down below the sweet white daisies growing in the long green grass saw ye never lilac blossoms or acacia white and red waving brightly in the sunshine on the tall trees overhead hymns for children c f a my dear child what a storm you have had how wet you must be exclaimed mrs larpent as Maida Rivers came bounding up the broad staircase at Abbotstoke Grange. "'Oh, no, I am quite dry. Feel!' "'Are you sure?' said Mrs. Larpin, drawing her darling into a luxurious bedroom, lighted up by a glowing fire, and full of pretty things. "'Here, come and take off your wet things, my dear, and Belairs shall bring you some tea.' "'I'm dry. I'm warm,' said Maida tossing off her plumy hat as she established herself with her feet on the fender but where do you think i have been you have so much to hear but first three guesses where we were in the rain in the stoneborough cloisters that you wanted to see my dear you did not keep your papa in the cold there no no we never got there at all guess again at mr edward wilmot's no could it have been at dr may's really then you must tell me there you deserve a good long story beginning at the beginning said maida clapping her hands wasn't it curious as we were coming up the last hill we met some girls in deep mourning with a lady who looked like their governess i wondered whether they could be dr may's daughters and so it turned out they were presently there began to fall little square lumps neither hail nor snow nor rain it grew very cold and rain came on it would have been great fun if i had not been afraid papa would catch cold and he said we could canter on to the inn but luckily there was dr may walking up the street and he begged us to come into his house i was so glad we were tolerably wet and dr may said something about hoping the girls were at home well when he opened the drawing-room door there was the poor daughter lying on the sofa poor girl tell me of her oh you must go and see her you won't look at her without losing your heart papa liked her so much see if he does not talk of her all the evening she looks the picture of goodness and sweetness only think of her having some of the maiden hair and cape jasmine still in water that we sent her so long ago she shall have some flowers every three days well dr may said there is one at least that is sure to be at home she felt my habit and said I must go and change it, and she called to a little thing of six, telling her to show me the way to Flora. She smiled and said she wished she could go herself, but Flora would take care of me. Little Blanche came and took hold of my hand, chattering away. Up we went, up two staircases, and at the top of the last stood a girl about seventeen. So pretty! Such deep blue eyes and such a complexion! That's Flora, little Blanche said. Flora, this is Miss Rivers, and she's wet, and Margaret says you are to take care of her. So that was your introduction? Yes, we got acquainted in a minute. She took me into a room, such a room, 
I believe Bellairs would be angry if she had such a one. All up in the roof, no fire, no carpet, except little strips by the beds. There were three beds. Flora used to sleep there till Miss May was ill. Now she dresses there. Yet I am sure they are as much ladies as I am. You are an only daughter, my dear, and a petted one, said Mrs. Larpent, smiling. There are too many of them to make much of, as we do of our meta. I suppose so, but I did not know that gentlewomen lived in such a way, said Meta. There were nice things about, a beautiful inlaid work-box of Flora's, and a rosewood desk, and plenty of books, and a Greek book and dictionary were spread open. I asked Flora if they were hers, and she laughed and said no, and that Ethel would be much discomposed that I had seen them. Ethel keeps up with her brother Norman. Only fancy, and he at the head of the school. How clever she must be! But, my dear, were you standing in your wet things all this time? No, I was trying on their frocks, but they trailed on the ground upon me, so she asked if I would come and sit by the nursery fire till my habit was dry, and there was a dear little good-humoured baby, so fair and pretty. She is not a bit shy, will go to anybody, but, they say, she likes no one so well as her brother Norman. So you had a regular treat of baby-nursing. That I had. I could not part with her, the darling. Flora thought we might take her down, and I liked playing with her in the drawing-room and talking to Miss May till the fly came to take us home. I wanted to have seen Ethel, but only think, Papa has asked Dr. May to bring Flora some day. How I hope he will! Little Maida, having told her story and received plenty of sympathy, proceeded to dress, and, while her maid braided her hair, a musing fit fell upon her. I have seen something of life to-day, thought she. I had thought of the great difference between us and the poor, but I did not know ladies lived in such different ways. I should be very miserable without Belair's, or without a fire in my room. I don't know what I should do if I had to live in that cold, shabby den, and do my own hair, yet they think nothing of it, and they are cultivated and ladylike. Is it all fancy, and being brought up to it? I wonder if it is right." Yet dear Papa likes me to have these things, and can afford them. I never knew I was luxurious before, and yet I think I must be. One thing I do wish, and that is, that I was of as much use as those girls. I ought to be. I am a motherless girl like them, and I ought to be everything to Papa, just as Miss May is, even lying on the sofa there, and only two years older than I am. I don't think I am of any use at all. He is fond of me, of course, dear Papa, and if I died, I don't know what would become of him, but that's only because I am his daughter. He has only George besides to care for. But, really and truly, he would get on as well without me. I never do anything for him, but now and then playing to him in the evening, and that not always, I am afraid, when I want to be about anything else. He is always petting me and giving me all I want, but I never do anything but my lessons, and going to the school, and the poor people, and that is all pleasure. I have so much that I never miss what I give away. I wonder whether it is all right. Leonora and Agatha have not so much money to do as they please with. They are not so idolized. George said, when he was angry, that Papa idolizes me, but they have all these comforts and luxuries, and never think of anything but doing what they like. They never made me consider as these maids do. I should like to know them more. I do so much when a friend of my own age. It is the only want I have. 
I have tried to make a friend of Leonora, but I cannot. She never cares for what I do. If she saw these maids, she would look down on them. Dear Mrs. Larpent is better than anyone, but then she is so much older. Flora May shall be my friend. I'll make her call me Meta as soon as she comes. When will it be? The day after tomorrow? But little Meta watched in vain. Dr. May always came with either Richard or the groom to drive him, and if Maida met him and hoped he would bring Flora next time, he only answered that Flora would like it very much, and he hoped soon to do so. The truth was, it was no such everyday matter as Maida imagined. The larger carriage had been broken, and the only vehicle held only the doctor, his charioteer, and in a very minute appendage behind a small son of the gardener, to open gates and hold the horse. The proposal had been one of those general invitations to be fulfilled at any time, and therefore easily set aside, and Dr. May, though continually thinking he should like to take his girls to Abbotstoke, never saw the definite time for so doing, and Flora herself, though charmed with Miss Rivers, and delighted with the prospect of visiting her, only viewed it as a distant prospect. There was plenty of immediate interest to occupy them at home, to say nothing of the increasing employment that Coxmoor gave to thoughts, legs, and needles. There was the commencement of the half-year, when Tom's schoolboy life was to begin, and when it would be proved whether Norman were able to retain his elevation. Margaret had much anxiety respecting the little boy about to be sent into a scene of temptation. Her great confidence was in Richard, who told her that boys did many more wrong things than were known at home, and yet turned out very well, and that Tom would be sure to right himself in the end. Richard had been blameless in his whole school course, but though never partaking of the other boy's evil practices, he could not form an independent estimate of character, and his tone had been a little hurt by sharing the school public opinion of morality. He thought Stoneborough and its temptations inevitable, and only wished to make the best of it. Margaret was afraid to harass her father by laying the case before him. All her brothers had gone safely through the school, and it never occurred to her that it was possible that, if her father knew the bias of Tom's disposition, he might choose, for the present at least, some other mode of education. She talked earnestly to Tom, and he listened impatiently. There is an age when boys rebel against female rule, and are not yet softened by the chivalry of manhood, and Tom was at this time of life. He did not like to be lectured by a sister, secretly disputed her right, and, proud of becoming a schoolboy, had not the generous deference for her weakness felt by his elder brothers. He was all the time peeling a stick, as if to show that he was not attending, and he raised up his shoulder pettishly whenever she came to a mention of the religious duty of sincerity. She did not long continue her advice, and, much disappointed and concerned, tried to console herself with hoping that he might have heeded more than he seemed to do. He was placed tolerably high in the school, and Norman, who had the first choice of fags, took him instead of Hector Ernstcliff, who had just passed beyond the part of the school liable to be fagged. He said he liked school, looked bright when he came home in the evening, and the sisters hoped all was right. Everyone was just now anxiously watching Norman, especially his father, who strove in vain to keep back all manifestation of his earnest desire to see him retain his post. 
Resolutely did the doctor refrain from asking any questions when the boys came in, but he could not keep his eyes from studying the face to see whether it bore marks of mental fatigue, and from following him about the room to discover whether he found it necessary, as he had done last autumn, to spend the evening in study. It was no small pleasure to see him come in with his handful of horse chestnut and hazel buds, and proceed to fetch the microscope and botany books, throwing himself eagerly into the study of the wonders of their infant forms, searching deeply into them with Margaret, and talking them over with his father, who was very glad to promote the pursuit, one in which he had always taken great interest. Another night Dr. May was for a moment disturbed by seeing the school books put out, but Norman had only some notes to compare, and while he did so, he was remarking on Flora's music and joining in the conversation so freely as to prove it was no labor to him. In truth, he was evidently quite recovered, entirely himself again, except that he was less boyish. He had been very lively and full of merry nonsense, but his ardor for play had gone off with his high spirits, and there was a manliness of manner and tone of mind that made him appear above his real age. At the end of a fortnight he volunteered to tell his father that all was right. I am not afraid of not keeping my place, he said. You were quite right, Papa. I am more up to my work than I was ever before, and it comes to me quite fresh and pleasant. I don't promise to get the Randall scholarship, if Forder and Cheviot stay on, but I can quite keep up to the mark in schoolwork. That's right, said Dr. May, much rejoiced. Are you sure you do it with ease and without its haunting you at night? Oh, yes, quite sure. I can't think what has made Dr. Hoxton set us up in such easy things this time. It is very lucky for me, for one gets so much less time to oneself as ducks. What? With keeping order? I said Norman, I fancy they think they may take liberties because I am new and young. I must have my eye in all corners of the hall at once, and do my own work by snatches as I can. Can you make them attend to you? Why, yes, pretty well, when it comes to the point. Will you or will you not? Cheviot is a great help, too, and has all the weight of being the eldest fellow amongst us. But still you find it harder work than learning? You had rather have to master the dead language than the live tongues? A pretty deal, said Norman, then added, one knows what to be at with the dead better than with the living. They don't make parties against one. I don't wonder at it. It was very hard on some of those great fellows to have me set before them, but I do not think it is fair to visit it by putting up the little boys to all sorts of mischief. Shameful, said the doctor warmly, but never mind, Norman. Keep your temper and do your own duty, and you are man enough to put down such petty spite. I hope I shall manage rightly, said Norman, but I shall be glad if I can get the Randall and get away to Oxford. School is not what it used to be, and if you don't think me too young... No, I don't, certainly not. Trouble has made a man of you, Norman, and you are fitter to be with men than boys. In the meantime, if you can be patient with these fellows, you'll be of great use where you are. If there had been anyone like you at the head of the school in my time... It would have kept me out of no end of scrapes. How does Tom get on? He is not likely to fall into this set, I trust. I am not sure, said Norman. He does pretty well on the whole. 
Some of them began by bullying him, and that made him cling to Cheviot and Ernestcliff and the better party. But lately I have thought Anderson, Jr., rather making up to him, and I don't know whether they don't think that tempting him over to them would be the surest way of vexing me. I have an eye over him, and I hope he may get settled into the steadier sort before next half. After a silence, Norman said, Papa, there is a thing I can't settle in my own mind. Suppose there had been wrong things done when older boys, and excellent ones too, were at the head of the school, yet they never interfered. Do you think I ought to let it go on? Certainly not, or why is power given to you? So I thought, said Norman. I can't see it otherwise. I wish I could, for it will be horrid to set about it, and they'll think it a regular shame in me to meddle. Oh, I know what I came into the study for. I want you to be so kind as to lend me your pocket Greek testament. I gave Harry my little one. You are very welcome. What do you want it for? Norman colored. I met with a sermon the other day that recommended reading a bit of it every day, and I thought I should like to try. Now the confirmation is coming. One can always have some quiet by getting away into the cloister. Bless you, my boy. While you go on in this way, I have not much fear but that you'll know how to manage. Norman's rapid progress affected another of the household in an unexpected way. Margaret, my dear, I wish to speak to you, said Miss Winter, reappearing when Margaret thought everyone was gone out walking. She would have said, I am very sorry for it, so ominous was the commencement, and her expectations were fulfilled when Miss Winter had solemnly seated herself and taken out her netting. I wish to speak to you about dear Ethel, said the governess. You know how unwilling I always am to make any complaint, but I cannot be satisfied with her present way of going on. Indeed, said Margaret, I am much grieved to hear this. I thought she had been taking great pains to improve. So she was at one time. I would not by any means wish to deny it, and it is not of her learning that I speak, but of a hurried, careless way of doing everything, and an irritability at being interfered with. Margaret knew how Miss Winter often tried Ethel's temper, and was inclined to take her sister's part. Ethel's time is so fully occupied, she said. That is the very thing that I was going to observe, my dear. Her time is too much occupied, and my conviction is that it is hurtful to a girl of her age. This was a new idea to Margaret, who was silent, longing to prove Miss Winter wrong, and not have to see poor Ethel pained by having to relinquish any of her cherished pursuits. "'You see, there is that Coxmore,' said Miss Winter. "'You do not know how far off it is, my dear. Much too great a distance for a young girl to be walking continually in all weathers.' "'That's a question for Papa,' thought Margaret. "'Besides,' continued Miss Winter, "'those children engross almost all her time and thoughts. She is working for them.' preparing lessons, running after them continually. It takes off her whole mind from her proper occupations, unsettles her, and I do think it is beyond what befits a young lady of her age. Margaret was silent. In addition, said Miss Winter, she is at every spare moment busy with Latin and Greek, and I cannot think that to keep pace with a boy of Norman's age and ability can be desirable for her. It is a great deal, said Margaret, but... I am convinced that she does more than is right, continued Miss Winter. She may not feel any ill effects at present, but you may depend upon it. It will tell on her by and by. 
Besides, she does not attend to anything properly. At one time she was improving in neatness and orderly habits. Now you surely must have seen how much less tidy her hair and dress have been. I have thought her hair looking rather rough, said Margaret disconsolately. No wonder, said Miss Winter, for Flora and Mary tell me she hardly spends five minutes over it in the morning, and with a book before her the whole time. If I send her up to make it fit to be seen, I meet with looks of annoyance. She leaves her books in all parts of the schoolroom for Mary to put away, and her table drawer is one mass of confusion. Her lessons she does well enough, I own, though what I should call much too fast. But have you looked at her work lately? She does not work very well, said Margaret, who was at that moment, though Miss Winter did not know it, regathering a poor child's frock that Ethel had galloped through with more haste than good speed. She works a great deal worse than little Blanche, said Miss Winter, and though it may not be the fashion to say so in these days, I consider good needlework far more important than accomplishments. Well, then, Margaret, I should wish you only just to look at her writing. And Miss Winter opened a French exercise book, certainly containing anything but elegant specimens of penmanship. Ethel's best writing was an upright, disjointed niggle, looking more like Greek than anything else, except where here and there it made insane efforts to become running hand, and thereby lost its sole previous good quality of legibility, while the lines waved about the sheet in almost any direction but the horizontal. The necessity she believed herself under of doing what Harry called writing with the end of her nose, and her always holding her pen with her fingers almost in the ink, added considerably to the difficulty of the performance. This being at her best, the worst may be supposed to be indescribable, when dashed off in a violent hurry and considerably garnished with blots. Margaret thought she had seen the worst, and was sighing at being able to say nothing for it, when Miss Winter confounded her by turning a leaf and showing it was possible to make a still wilder combination of scramble, niggle, scratch, and crookedness, and this was supposed to be an amended edition. Miss Winter explained that Ethel had, in an extremely short time, performed an exercise in which no fault could be detected except the writing, which was pronounced to be too atrocious to be shown up to M. Ballomp. On being desired to write it over again, she had obeyed with a very bad grace, and some murmurs about Coxmore, and produced the second specimen, which, in addition to other defects, had some elysians from errant carelessness, depriving it of its predecessor's merits of being good French. Miss Winter had been so provoked that she believed this to be an effect of ill-temper, and declared that she should certainly have kept Ethel at home to write it over again, if it had not so happened that Dr. May had proposed to walk part of the way with her and Richard, and the governess was unwilling to bring her into disgrace with him. Margaret was so grateful to her for this forbearance that it disposed her to listen the more patiently to the same representations put in, what Miss Winter fancied, different forms. Margaret was much perplexed. She could not but see much truth in what Miss Winter said, and yet she could not bear to thwart Ethel, whom she admired with her whole heart, and that dry experience and prejudiced preciseness did not seem capable of entering into her sister's thirst for learning and action. When Miss Winter said Ethel would grow up odd, eccentric, and blue, Margaret was ready to answer that she would be superior to everyone, 
and when the governess urged her to insist on Coxmoor being given up, she felt impatient of that utter want of sympathy for the good work. All that evening Margaret longed for a quiet time to reflect, but it never came till she was in bed, and when she had made up her mind how to speak to Ethel, it was five times harder to secure her alone. Even when Margaret had her in the room by herself, she looked wild and eager, and said she could not stay, she had some Thucydides to do. "'Won't you stay with me a little while, quietly?' said Margaret. "'We hardly ever have one of our talks.' "'I didn't mean to vex you, dear Margaret. "'I like nothing so well, only we are never alone, and I've no time. "'Pray do spare me a minute, Ethel, for I have something that I must say to you, "'and I am afraid you won't like it, so do listen kindly.' "'Oh,' said Ethel, "'Miss Winter has been talking to you.' I know she said she would tell you that she wants me to give up Coxmoor. You aren't dreaming of it, Margaret. Indeed, dear Ethel, I should be very sorry, but one thing I am sure of, that there is something amiss in your way of going on. Did she show you that horrid exercise? Yes. Well, I know it was baddish writing, but just listen, Margaret. We promised six of the children to print them each a verse of a hymn on a card to learn. Richie did three and then could not go on, for the book that the others were in was lost till last evening, and then he was writing for Papa. So I thought I would do them before we went to Coxmoor, and that I should squeeze time out of the morning, but I got a bit of Sophocles that was so horribly hard it ate up all my time, and I don't understand it properly now. I must get Norman to tell me. And that ran in my head, and made me make a mistake in my sum, and have to begin it again. Then, just as I thought I had saved time over the exercise, comes Miss Winter and tells me I must do it over again, and scolds me besides about the ink on my fingers. She would send me up at once to get it off, and I could not find Nurse and her bottle of stuff for it, so that wasted ever so much more time, and I was so vexed that, really and truly, my hand shook and I could not write any better. No, I thought it looked as if you had been in one of your agonies, and she thought I did it on purpose, and that made me angry, and so we got into a dispute, and away went all the little moment I might have had, and I was forced to go to Coxmoor as a promise breaker. Don't you think you had better have taken pains at first? Well, so I did with the sense, but I hadn't time to look at the writing much. You would have made better speed if you had. Oh, yes, I know I was wrong, but it is a great plague altogether. "'Really, Margaret, I shan't get Thucydides done. "'You must wait a little longer, please, Ethel, "'for I want to say to you that I am afraid you are doing too much, "'and that prevents you from doing things well, "'as you were trying to do last autumn.' "'You are not thinking of my not going to Coxmoor,' "'cried Ethel vehemently. "'I want you to consider what is to be done, dear Ethel. "'You thought, last autumn, a great deal of curing your careless habits.' now you seem not to have time to attend you can do a great deal very fast i know but isn't it a pity to be always in a hurry it isn't coxmoor that is the reason said ethel no you did pretty well when you began but you know that was in the holidays when you had no latin and greek to do oh but margaret they won't take so much time when i have once got over the difficulties and see my way but just now they have put Norman into such a frightfully difficult play that I can hardly get on at all with it, 
and there's a new kind of greek verses too and i don't make out from the book how to manage them norman showed me on saturday but mine won't be right when i've got over that i shan't be so hurried but norman will go on to something harder i suppose i dare say i shall be able to do it perhaps you might but i want you to consider if you are not working beyond what can be good for anybody you see norman is much cleverer than most boys and you are a year younger and besides doing all his work at the head of the school his whole business of the day you have cocksmore to attend to and your own lessons besides reading all the books that come into the house now isn't that more than is reasonable to expect any head and hands to do properly but if i can do it but can you dear ethel aren't you always racing from one thing to another doing them by halves feeling hunted and then growing vexed i know i've been cross lately said ethel but it's the being so bothered and why are you bothered isn't it that you undertake too much what would you have me do said ethel in an injured unconvinced voice not give up my children no said margaret but don't think me very unkind if i say suppose you left off trying to keep up with norman oh margaret margaret and her eyes filled with tears we have hardly missed doing the same every day since the first latin grammar was put into his hands i know it would be very hard said margaret but ethel continued in a piteous tone a little sentimental from high hayek hock up to alcaics and beda thukadidu we have gone on together and i can't bear to give it up i'm sure i can stop ethel i really doubt whether you can do you know that norman was telling papa the other day that it was very odd dr hoxton gave him such easy lessons ethel looked very much mortified you see said margaret kindly we all know that men have more power than women and i suppose the time has come for norman to pass beyond you he would not be cleverer than any one if he could not do more than a girl at home he has so much more time for it said ethel that's the very thing now consider ethel his work after he goes to oxford will be doing his very utmost and you know what an utmost that is if you could keep up with him at all you must give your whole time and thoughts to it and when you had done so if you could get all the honors in the university what would it come to you can't take a first class i don't want one said ethel i only can't bear not to do as norman does and i like greek so much and for that would you give up being a useful steady daughter and sister at home the sort of woman that dear mamma wished to make you and a comfort to papa ethel was silent and large tears were gathering you own that that is the first thing yes said ethel faintly and that is what you fail in most yes then ethel dearest when you made up your mind to cocksmoor you knew those things could not be done without a sacrifice yes but i didn't think it would be this margaret was wise enough not to press her and she sat down and sighed pitifully presently she said margaret if you'd only let me leave off that stupid old french and horrid dull reading with miss winter i should have plenty of time for everything and what does one learn by hearing mary read poetry she can't understand you work don't you but indeed ethel don't say that i can let you leave off anything i don't feel as if i had that authority if it be done at all it must be by papa's consent and if you wish me to ask him about it 
I will, only I think it would vex Miss Winter, and I don't think dear Mamma would have liked Greek and Coxmore to swallow up all the little common ladylike things. Ethel made two or three great gulps. Margaret, must I give up everything and forget all my Latin and Greek? I should think that would be a great pity, said Margaret, if you were to give up the verse-making, and the trying to do as much as Norman, and fix some time in the day, half an hour, perhaps, for your Greek, I think it might do very well. Thank you, said Ethel, much relieved. I'm glad you don't want me to leave it all off. I hope Norman won't be vexed, she added, looking a little melancholy. But Norman had not by any means the sort of sentiment on the subject that she had. Of course, you know, Ethel, said he, it must have come to this some time or other, and if you find those verses too hard, and that they take up too much of your time, you had better give them up. Ethel did not like anything to be said to be too hard for her, and was very near pleading she only wanted time, but some recollection came across her, and presently she said, I suppose it is a wrong sort of ambition to want to learn more, in one's own way, when one is told it is not good for one. I was just going to say I hated being a woman, and having these tiresome little trifles, my duty, instead of learning, which is yours, Norman." "'I'm glad you did not,' said Norman, "'for it would have been very silly of you, "'and I assure you, Ethel, "'it is really time for you to stop, "'or you would get into a regular learned lady "'and be good for nothing. "'I don't mean that knowing more "'than other people would make you so, "'but minding nothing else would.' "'This argument from Norman himself "'did much to reconcile Ethel's mind "'to the sacrifice she had made, "'and when she went to bed "'she tried to work out the question in her own mind.' whether her eagerness for classical learning was a wrong sort of ambition to know what other girls did not, and whether it was right to crave for more knowledge than was thought advisable for her. She only bewildered herself and went to sleep before she had settled anything, but that she knew she must make all give way to Papa first, and secondly to Coxmore. Meanwhile, Margaret had told her father all that had passed, he was only surprised to hear that Ethel had kept up so long with Norman, and thought that it was quite right that she should not undertake so much, agreeing more entirely than Margaret had expected with Miss Winters's view, that it would be hurtful to body as well as mind. "'It is perfectly ridiculous to think of her attempting it,' he said. "'I am glad you have put a stop to it.' "'I am glad I have,' said Margaret, and dear Ethel behaved so very well.' If she had resisted, it would have puzzled me very much. I must have asked you to settle it. But it is very odd, Papa. Ethel is the one of them all who treats me most as if I had real authority over her. She lets me scold her, asks my leave, never seems to recollect for a moment how little older I am, and how much cleverer she is. I am sure I never should have submitted so readily, and that always makes it more difficult to me to direct her. I don't like to take upon me with her, because it seems wrong to have her obeying me as if she were a mere child. She is a fine creature, said Dr. May emphatically. It just shows the fact, the higher the mind, the readier the submission. But you don't mean that you have any difficulty with the others. Oh, no, no. Flora never could need any interference, especially from me, and Mary is a thorough good girl. I only meant that Ethel lays herself out to be ruled in quite a remarkable way. I am sure, though she does love learning, her real love is for goodness and for you, Papa. 
Ethel would have thought her sacrifice well paid for had she seen her father's look of mournful pleasure. End of Part 1, Chapter 18 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gherkin, Gilbert, Arizona